all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. And thanks for joining me today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're going to be talking all about staying safe in the summer. You guys know I love to talk about how we prevent things from happening. And so we're going to talk about uh, some of the more common things that occur during the summer and steps we can put in place to prevent those things, as well as some initial steps to take in treating some of those things as well. And as always, you can send me an email, fit at mpbonline.org. And our producer, Kevin Farrell, is going to be helping me out today and kind of asking some of these common questions that we get about summer safety. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Josie. This is an especially uh, pertinent topic following the heat dome that we all suffered through last week. um, Absolutely. Let's jump right into things. What are the biggest safety issues when it comes to the summertime? Well, you know, there are many, obviously, but we're going to kind of try and narrow it down into a couple of buckets of things. Um, The first is heat. Um, The second is water safety. And I'm not talking about water that we drink, although that is an important part of safety that we'll talk about. Um, But I'm talking, you know, lakes, pools, oceans, that type of stuff, Um, your skin health, and then also food safety. And all of those are really, really important. One, because they can cause a lot of of illness and even death in some cases. Um, And they have some uh, really pretty clear-cut prevention strategies that we can can put in, in place beforehand. All right. So let's start out. Uh, We mentioned the heat. So what are the dangers related to excessive heat in the summertime? Well, you know, we tend to hear the word heat stroke, right? That's a a fairly common word that you'll hear around. But heat stroke is on a continuum of something we call heat-related illnesses. And it can be as mild as something like heat rash all the way to heat stroke. And I think it's important to kind of start with what is a heat related illness? Like what is what is going on? Because it's not just I'm too hot. Right. So people experience these heat related illnesses when the body's temperature control system is all messed up. Right. So our body works to maintain homeostasis, right, where everything is relatively stable. Our heart rate 
for the most part, um, stays in a certain range. Our breathing rate stays in a certain range. Um, our temperature as well stays in a certain range. You know, you'll hear 98.6, but rarely do I check somebody's temperature and it's exactly 98.6. Uh, there's a little bit of a range there that our body um, keeps keeps itself in, right? In the winter, you'll or when you're cold, you'll often shiver. And that's one of the body's ways to generate heat to help raise your your body temperature if it's getting too cold. And then in when you're too warm, sweating is what does that. So all of our the blood vessels that feed our skin uh, get bigger. We call that vasodilation. And so that's why the skin will often get that flushed color to it, that pink or red color, and we start to sweat. And that's one of our body's ways of getting rid of excess heat. So a heat-related illness occurs when the body's systems just can't keep up with the degree of heat that is going on. So anything that uh, where sweating is just not enough or that impacts the ability of the body to sweat is going to lead to a heat-related illness. And then once those mechanisms are kind of overridden, so to speak, um, the body's internal temperature just continues to climb. And our organs don't like that. You know, our, our all everything inside of us is, again, set to be at that in that range of normal temperatures. And so when it gets too high and stays too high, it's not good for our brain and our heart and our kidneys and all these other different kinds of organs that we have going on in there. So what, you know, what could cause that? Well, being in the heat for prolonged periods of time, but also uh, things that impact our ability to sweat and for that sweat to evaporate, because that's really when we cool is when that sweat evaporates off of our skin. Um, And so that can be the type of clothing that we have on. Uh, It can be medicines that we're on. So a lot of times people are on um, you know, blood pressure medicines that may uh, have a risk of dehydrating you, right? So if you don't have enough liquid in your body, then sweating is impaired, right? Um, or there are certain medications that people may take for prostate issues or for things like Parkinson's that impair the ability to sweat, right? They just make you sweat less. And so that can be a problem. And then if it's humid, And everybody knows what humid means. It's when you step outside and it feels like you just walked into a bowl of soup, um, that the air is real thick and heavy. Um, When when it is more humid outside, the sweat doesn't evaporate as well. So that's oftentimes when you'll hear, you know, um, heat advisories, not just for sustained temperatures above a certain amount, but it being so humid as well, because we know that that's going to keep you from sweating as well. Here's a crazy question. <clears throat> okay. Lay it on me. So um, the heat, the moisture wicking fabrics that yeah. are very popular, it sucks the water away from the skin. Is that impairing the evaporation and cooling process? No, that's okay. What what we have to be careful of is not all spandexy clothes is, is moisture wicking, right? So in terms of a prevention strategy, which is what we want to do, um, usually lightweight clothing that that's what we call breathable, right? It lets air flow through it is going to be best. Now, some of the um, kind of cool, dry fabrics that are out there will help with that. But a lot of plain, you know, leggings or sports bras or, you know, compression tanks and those kinds of things are not made out of that material. 
and they're just holding uh, that moisture to the skin. So we really want to make sure that the fabric is good and breathable and when in doubt, just nice and loose and also um it doesn't hurt to have it be lighter colored, right? Because you know, black fabric is going to tend to just feel hotter and attract more of those rays in. All right. So um, let's talk about hydration. How do we stay hydrated when it's hot outside? Well, you know, the deal with hydration is it needs to start before you ever go outside, especially if you're going to be working outside. So, you know, if you're going to be, uh, you know, doing construction or lawn care, or any of those different kinds of things, don't wait till you're outside and sweating and hot before you drink your first glass of water. You know, you really want to make sure that you're starting the day hydrated because most of us don't drink enough water. Most of us start out a little bit, a little bit behind in terms of, of hydration um, on the regular. And also don't wait until you're thirsty to drink because once you're thirsty, you're dehydrated uh, once that kind of thirst mechanism kicks in. So everybody usually asks, what do I need to drink? Most folks that are just going to be out and about in um, outside, it's just water is the appropriate thing to drink. Now, if you're going to be doing um, prolonged, extensive activity out in the heat, that may be the time to bring in an electrolyte beverage, I mean, like a sports drink or something like that. But we want to make sure that those are not um, energy drinks, which oftentimes people will grab an energy drink and call it a sports drink, and that is... That is not it, right? Energy drinks usually have a large amount of caffeine in them, and caffeine dehydrates us. So it makes us pee more and can dehydrate us more. The same deal for alcohol, which is especially important when you're hanging out by the pool or going to the beach. Those are often activities that we kind of think of as people having a a frosty beverage uh, while they're poolside or whatever. And we'll talk more about why that's maybe not the smartest uh, decision for a lot of folks in a little bit. But alcohol dehydrates us as well. So uh, most folks just need plain water. Um, You may need an electrolyte beverage if you're going to be out for a prolonged amount of times. If you're on any medicines like diuretics, you know, that are what we call fluid pills or water pills, you need to talk to your individual healthcare provider about what the best hydration solution is going to be, because those things also alter some of your electrolytes. So it may be that you're going to need an electrolyte solution a little bit a little bit sooner rather than later. Um, the other thing I often get asked is, you know, how much should I be drinking or is there too much water that you can drink? And, you know, yes, right? You can drink water too quickly and you kind of override the body's ability to handle all of those electrolyte shifts um, fairly easily. So usually if you're out and working in the heat, Um, We recommend like a glass of water, which is eight ounces, about every 20 minutes. So if you think about that, that's 24 ounces in an hour, which is completely appropriate. Where we can get into some trouble is when we consume much larger amounts than that, like 48 ounces or more of plain water in an hour. That's just a little bit too much for our kidneys to try and keep up with and can cause some um, uh, 
you know, some irritation uh, or imbalances in your fluid and electrolyte status. And I often get asked, what temperature water should I drink? Well, um, if you drink super cold water, it may cause your tummy to cramp up a little bit. So there's no, uh, you know, hard and fast rule on that, but just cool water about a cup every uh, every 20 minutes or so is appropriate to kind of maintain that, that hydration there. And then don't forget to also consume snacks while you're doing that. So that's one of the reasons why you may not need an electrolyte beverage if you're eating fruits and vegetables and, you know, you've had maybe um, some peanut butter and crackers and those kinds of things, you're going to get electrolytes and sugar and those kinds of things from those foods. So don't forget to also feed yourself when you're out there. All right, we're going to go to Jim and Jackson. Good morning. How can we help you? Good morning. My question is a general one about waking up in the morning. Very often my eyes will be crusty. Okay. Uh, There's a type of grit there. Where does that grit come from? And is this normal? I have to splash water on my eyes to get to be able to see clearly yeah absolutely so do you wear contacts by any chance no i don't okay sometimes folks that wear contacts will have some irritation of the eye that will do that and especially if you sleep in your contacts it will do that other than that it may be um just some eye dryness that happens in the middle of the night and then you kind of over tear in response to that or it could just be a little eye allergy as well going on is it clear that they're crusted or does that have any color to it no, it has a little color to it. Okay, like a yellow or a green color? Yes, yellow. Okay, okay. And how long has that been going on? Well, a couple of years. A couple of years, okay. So it's not something super acute, more kind of long-term. And do you go to the eye doctor regularly? I do. Okay. Have you, have you talked with them about it at all? Have they had anything to offer? I have not discussed that with my eye doctor. Okay, okay. You know, the next time you go, that would probably be, you know, something I'd want to bring up there because they can look and tell if there's any kind of eye irritation going on. You could also try like a re-wetting drop um, at nighttime to kind of make sure that your eye stays nice and moist during um, sleep and doesn't get irritated because that grittiness sounds like it's getting irritated um, while you're sleeping. Thank you. I will do that. You're so welcome. Thank you for giving us a call today. All right, guys, and we will continue on and go to Gulfport and say good morning to John. Good morning. How can I help you? Uh, good morning. Um, well, my question really isn't germane to summer heat. That's okay. Uh, I'm, but, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to be turning 70 here in another month or so and uh, know that, um, you know, decline in VO2 max and muscle mass and, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, visceral fat uh accumulation are all linked to, uh, you know, health in later years and so right. forth. And I didn't know that if in, if there's any place, uh, in the, in the Gulf coast region mm-hmm. where VO2 max testing is available, um, you know, particularly if, if for seniors at a discount would be great, Right. but, um, I'm down at Gulfport, yeah. uh, and would be interested in getting, um, uh, a current VO2 max, mm-hmm. uh, and also a DEXA scan for visceral fat. And, yeah. and I don't know if any diversities or in those places had such. Yeah, so um, off the top of my head, I don't know any place specifically in Gulfport. Um, I know that there is a company called DEXA Fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that offers the body composition scan, so you can see, you know, percentage of visceral fat versus lean, you know, lean muscle tissue, bone, all of those kinds of things. Um, there used to be one here in Madison. I'm not sure if it's still there or not, but you might check that company. It's called Dexa Fit. 
And then in terms of VO2 max, uh, you know, outside of having, you know, like a medical condition that we would do pulmonary function tests on, things like that, just to be able to, you know, commercially get a VO2 max, um, you may check with some of your gyms um, because that is um, uh, any any gym that uses like the polar body age, which is a a fitness screening that, that checks a lot of different things. They do check a VO2 max with that. Um, in yeah. that particular um, fitness evaluation. So if you had, that, there's an extra lot, go ahead. Is that, is that the actual um, uh, uh, VO2 max test with oxygen uh, consumption, or is it a, uh, an estimated one? With it's an oxygen. estimated. It's an estimated. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I've, done that. I've done that in a local gym here. Gotcha. Uh, I would just, I'd, I'd be interested in actually the, the real McCoy. The real, yeah, the real uh, thing. Outside of a formal pulmonary function test that would be done with with pulmonology, um, I'm not sure that that is that there are any companies that offer that just to the average consumer. I don't think so, but I will do some digging on that, and I'll actually ask um, our exercise physiologist as well if they know um, of of where that might occur. Um, If you will um, send me an email, so that's fit f i t. Yeah. at mpbonline.org. That way I'll have your email, and when I find out, I'll push out some information to you. That would be fantastic. I appreciate it so much. You're so welcome. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Stay cool. Have some trying. All right. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Those were great, great questions this morning. All right, Kevin, what's next on the docket? All right, Josie, this is uh, pertinent because I'm headed down to visit my brother in Florida this weekend, mm-hmm. going to the beach. So... What do we have to remember in the summertime when we're around pools, beaches, lakes, rivers that's around water? Well, you know, you hit the nail on the head in the fact that the first thing is we just have to not assume safety, right? You know, there are going to be risks associated with any type of body of water, and they vary depending on what type of water we're getting in, whether that is a pool, whether that's a hot tub, whether it is, you know, freshwater, lake type situation or the ocean but they all have risks associated with them and it's i am not saying don't go and have fun i'm saying go prepared right and so the first step when you're around any body of water is can everybody swim Right. That is a really important thing um, to think about and to just note, you know, if there's anybody who's not a swimmer that that literally can't swim or someone who may just be not as strong of a swimmer as other folks, that's important. And it's never too late to learn to swim. So if you're an adult and you're like, well, I just never learned to swim as a kiddo. Please reach out um, to you know your local um, uh, pool facilities and ask about swim lessons um, because it is super important. The flip of that is don't get a false sense of security just because someone has had swim lessons, right? Don't you like what? Well, they had swim lessons last year. Like they're good. Supervision is important, especially when we're talking about little kiddos that are going to be around bodies of water. Um, We have to have supervision for them and be able to reach them quickly. This is not mama and daddy all the way across the pool and little tyke all the way at the other end of the pool. You really need to be within pretty much arm's length of kiddos when they're in a water source like that so that you can get to them. Um, And you want to make sure that you're fully aware, right? So supervision also is 
not distracted supervision. So a lot of times I see people on their phone or reading. And trust me, I love to read more than anybody else in the world. And one of my favorite things to do is lay by the pool and read a book. But if my kiddos are in the pool, I'm not reading. Um, my eyes are on on my kiddos um, at all times. And if they're getting out of the pool to go to the bathroom, they check in with me. They're like, hey, I'm out. I'm going to the bathroom. Campbell's still in the pool, right? Um, that way I don't freak out and start looking for the other one, you know, and then he lets me know before he gets back in the pool. And that may seem like a lot, but it's really an easy thing to start to, to institute. Just, hey, let me know when you get out um, so that I know where you are uh, and those types of things. And, you know, just again, don't assume that if someone has had swim lessons that that is going to be enough to, uh, to to mean we don't need to watch that person, right? Um, my oldest uh, son is super tall. He's like 6'2". And so our pool that we have, our neighborhood pool, only goes to six feet. And so, you know, did that give me like a little bit of like breath of relief? Like, yes, he can stand up. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean I don't also continue to watch him because he likes to jump and, you know, do all these uh, things. Um, no diving in a pool that shallow, though. <laughs> don't do that. Um, but I still keep my eyes on on him. And I really like it when there's an adult kind of for every child to look at, you know. But if, if not, at least um, I kind of let whoever I'm with know which kids I'm watching. So, you know, if we have some friends over to the pool, um, I'll be like, okay, I'm watching Campbell and Caleb. Who are you watching? That way we just, everybody's communicating with each other so we know where people are. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, d- uh, bigger bodies of water, and in particular the beach where you're going, Kevin, and I'm actually going to the beach um, at the end of the month as well, um, there are a different set of of hazards, so to speak, when we're at the beach. And it seems to be more uh, at least talked about this summer, but rip currents um, have been much more publicized this summer. Uh, we had that um, you know, former NFL quarterback who um, got caught and, and drowned uh, a couple weeks ago. And he's not the only one this summer. I think The last time I looked, it was up to like 10 or 11 folks um, along the Gulf. So we want to make sure that we're aware of what a rip current is. Oftentimes, you'll hear the term um, undertow kind of used with it. And that really implies the wrong thing. That makes you think that it's going to suck you down. And that's not what a rip current is. A rip current is going to pull you out toward the big one to the big big water right over the sandbars and out into the ocean and you know it if you've never experienced that if you've never felt that pull it can be very frightening and you know the first tip when you when you look all these things up it'll say don't panic and that is super easier said than done when you're like I can't get back to shore Um, but the reason behind that piece of advice is if you fight against the current you're not going to win that fight, right? That current is swift and is, again, pushing you out to to sea. And so if you fight against it, you're going to wear yourself out in terms of the amount of oxygen you have available to do things and the ability to stay afloat, right? So the kind of best course of action once you, if you've gotten into a rip current, is you want to swim parallel to the beach, right? So instead of trying to swim 
back to shore, you're going to swim parallel to shore. And the reason for that is, is that rip current is like a channel. Um, so like a roadway almost in the water. And so you're trying to, instead of swimming against traffic, you're trying to swim out of that road, right, and get back into uh, water that does not have that current on it. So if you don't know what a rip current looks like, I encourage you to, to do so. I usually say don't Google stuff, but Google this because the pictures are um, much easier to, to kind of get a grasp on than me trying to describe it. But usually you'll see it's almost a darker colored water in between two areas of waves that are breaking. So if you see waves that are coming on the shore that are breaking, but there's more of a a calm looking area in between that, that calmness is deceptive. That's often where that current is. And then I do encourage you, um, if you're going to be traveling to the beach, to um, find, you can join on social media. Usually most of the beaches have um, Facebook pages or Instagram pages that are often run by the lifeguards in that area um, or the Chamber of Commerce in that area. Most of those places have a text line that you can subscribe to while you're there on vacation. And every morning they will text you the flag status for that beach. And if you're not familiar with what, what I'm talking about is each beach will fly a colored flag to let you know about the um, the hazards in the water that day and they go all the way from a a green flag to yellow to a single red double red and then purple are the ones that are most common here on um, the gulf coast so alabama um, and uh, florida panhandle beaches and you know green is usually low hazard although you can never predict all hazards, but is generally seen as pretty calm waters with low currents, that type of thing. Yellow is going to be more of your moderate hazards um, with um, kind of light surf and currents. When you get into red, red is a, is a high um, a high hazard, right? The currents are much stronger at this point. Uh, and a double red is the water is closed to the public. Now, that means you shouldn't get in the water like I don't I don't know how else to say that but you shouldn't get in the water on a double red flag um, there are lifeguards and uh, you know beach patrol they're going to be there to try and keep people out of the water but they can't be everywhere at once so if a double red is flying please don't get in the water right make it a pool day um, and, and go to the pool and hang out and I know that's hard I know you've saved your money and um, you know Beach vacations are expensive and we're making memories and all those kinds of things. But let's make really good memories and not be in the water um, on a double red. And I would seriously consider being in it at all on a red. We don't go in on a red um, either um, because it's just so unpredictable. The ocean is is unpredictable there. And then a purple. I often get asked what purple is. Um, and <laughs> bless it, it's called marine pest. And the word pest, I'm like, but it's their home. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm the marine pest in this situation. But uh, that can be things like stingrays, um, dangerous fish. Um, m- more often than not, it's jellyfish is what, um, uh, especially on our, our coast, that you'll see there. Um, the little clear um, jellyfish, but then also those uh, man of war um, that are beautiful to look at but don't touch those suckers because they will hurt a lot all right guys that was a lot of information there but 
really want you to enjoy your vacation and be safe on that vacation around um, around water, wherever that may be, um, if that's a pool or the beach. So I hope you'll take some of those into consideration as you're planning your trips. All right, Kevin, what's next on our list? Before we jump to skin safety, I did want to reiterate what you were saying about supervision at the pool, because mm-hmm. I think it was on the Today Show a couple of years ago, they had a feature that how quickly someone can drown. Mm-hmm. And also, it's not like we see in Hollywood as, help me, I'm drowning, right. help me. It's, it's quiet. It's quiet. It's so, quiet, yeah. yeah. You made a really great point about supervision. And, and again, don't be reading a book supervising. You watch the people. You watch in the, the people, absolutely. And, you know, I also think about the, the color of swimwear that my kiddos have on. Um, if we're in the pool, most pools, um, the liner of that pool is kind of aquamarine so that it that the water looks beautiful in blue. And so if they're... Um, little outfits are also that in that shade range and they're in the deep end and they go under, it can be harder um, to see that. So I tend to put them in bright things like red and, and orange and those kinds of things that are really going to show up um, so that I can see them and they, they stand out. They always go, Mom, I look like a highlighter. Yes, you do, friend. And that's so that I can see you wherever you go. All right. We'll move on to skin safety. And if you would talk about the dangers of a sunburn. Well, you know, sunburns are something that are super common. And so um, it's also kind of like, look at look at my sunburn. Like I had such a good time wherever I was. Right. But they are not benign, meaning they're they're not not causing damage every time you get a sunburn. And so I think it's important to kind of step back and go, you know, what's causing sunburns? Right. Well, we're talking about UV rays from the sun. And there are two kinds, UVA, UVB. Right. And they do different things. Right. They penetrate different layers of the skin. And so UVA is largely what is associated with aging of the skin. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I spend plenty of money trying to put creams on my face to make me not look as old as I am becoming. And so I don't want to counteract that uh, by uh, prematurely aging my skin from the sun. And so UVA is associated more with that more fine line development, more wrinkles, that kind of thing. UVB um, is the ones that are more, more closely associated with skin cancer risks, those types of things. So all that to say, when we are trying to block UV, we want to make sure that we're blocking both, right? So that we get um, some protection from aging as well as protection from skin cancer. Now, those um, burns are increasing our risk for um, for skin cancer because that burn damages the genetic material in the skin. And so anytime that happens, mutations can occur and that just increases that cell turnover and increases the risk for that skin cancer there. So if we want nice, healthy skin that looks young and youthful and doesn't get skin cancer, then we do want to pay special attention about when we're being exposed to sunlight, um, for how long and what the degree of protection is there. Not only for skin health, but also for prevention of, ouch, that really hurts. (laughs) How do we prevent a sunburn? Well, you know, the first thing you can think about is when am I planning to be outside, right? Because the sun's rays are brightest and more intense at a certain point of the day, right? Usually between like 10 in the morning and 4 in the afternoon. You're like, that's the whole day. Well, it is, right? But... You know, be be taking that into account, you know, especially if you're just going out to exercise, right? Exercising earlier than that or later than that is going to help with your UV exposure there. Aside from just staying in during those times, we want to add multiple layers of protection at that point, right? So a hat, 
on your head is really important. And in particular, a wide brimmed hat. And the reason I say that is because one of the places that I see overlooked in sun protection is the tops of your ears. Okay. Um, if you wear a, like a ball cap, uh, which is very common, um, especially for ladies, we throw our hair up in a bun and put a little ball cap on. The tips of those ears are, are sticking out right there and they will burn. And they are, um, I've seen, you know, many more cases of like uh, squamous cell and basal cell carcinoma on, on that portion of the ear. Um, so a wide brimmed hat is going to protect the scalp, which is another area that burns that people don't think about because you don't typically put sunscreen up there Um, you should but most folks don't and then um, your ears and it keeps the sun off your face as well and even your shoulders depending on how big that um, hat is Um, there are um, uv protective um, swimwears now Um, that doesn't uh, cancel out the need for sunscreen though so if you're wearing a, uh, a rash guard or something like that that's got uv protection we still want to put sunscreen on um, underneath those things because we should not be out in the sun without some kind of sunscreen protectant all right um, and that's not just for the summer even though we're doing a summer show uh, sun protection is important all year round even on cloudy days it's kind of cloudy today um but you could still you're still getting UV rays from that. And you can if you're out for a long enough period of time, you can still get a sunburn um, when it's cloudy, when it's overcast. Um, if it is uh, snow outside, you can actually get a burn reflecting off of that um, that snow, all of those different things. So sun protection is important every day of the year. Um, a lot of uh, moisturizers, facial moisturizers now have US uh, UP. SPF in them um, for application underneath your makeup and those kinds of things for ladies out there um, or for anybody who's um, applying product on their face. Um, But applying the correct SPF before you go outside is really good and important, right? I see a lot of people wait till they get to the pool or the beach or whatever to slather up on that kind of stuff. And that is better than nothing. But I would prefer to see you do it, you know, you know, 15 to 30 minutes before so that it soaks in and it is good in there. And so people ask, well, how much should I use? What SPF? Um, at least an SPF of 30 uh, is what the Skin Cancer Foundation recommends. Um, I usually go up to a, at least a 50 on that. Um, and it's just increased blocking of UV rays is what's going to happen with that increased SPF. A lot of people think that it's how many minutes it protects you for. So like SPF of 30 protects you for 30 minutes. That ain't it. Okay, That's not what that is talking about. It's um, how much protection it provides for you relative to skin that doesn't have any um, protection on it. So um, it's not it's not a timer on it there, right? The actual timer is you need to be reapplying that sunscreen um, at least every two hours, right? So if you're out all day at the pool or all day at the beach or um, gardening or whatever it is you're doing, you need to reapply that. Or if you're in and out of the water, when you come out of the water, reapply that sunscreen. And you need more than you think, right? You need about an ounce, which is like two tablespoons worth of sunscreen. And that's a lot, right? And But that's important because you want to make sure that you get it everywhere, right? I prefer the 
the like squirt it in your hand and apply it over the aerosolized because I can't see where the spray gets right now. We'll use the spray on my scalp um, because it's not as greasy. But if I'm going to be applying it to the body, I like the the cream based ones or lotion based ones. That way I can see where all I get it um, and get it in all those spaces appropriately. One other spot uh, that I've uh, learned the hard way that you need to make sure that you uh, cover is the tops of your feet. Absolutely. Because you're used to wearing shoes and that part of your foot does not usually get a lot of sun. That's right. They are milky white and they you will look like a um, a peppermint if you don't put that on there. And we'll also see what kind of shoe you had on because it will be the negative imprint of that will be on the tops of your feet. But that is a really important um, part to remember is the tops of your feet often get neglected and the back of your kneecap. I see folks not get get it as good in there and get that um, that lotion worked in there. And those are all areas that typically don't get a lot of sun uh, and that will burn very, very quickly. Or tell us how we should treat a sunburn. Well, you know, the the deal with treating a sunburn is once it's burned, it's probably like you're not going to necessarily prevent that peeling from occurring. Like if you've burned bad enough that those skin cells die, um, all the aloe in the world is not going to kind of regenerate those skin cells. They're going to slough off. Now, aloe is often um, uh, kind of touted for those kinds of things. Be careful when you're choosing an aloe gel. Um, I always flip it over and look on, just like when you're reading food labels, right? Like, I want to know what's in this thing. Um, and if aloe is not up there in the first couple of ingredients, then it's not really aloe gel, right? I picked up one the other day and flipped it over and looked at it and like the second ingredient was some kind of alcohol. And I was like, well, that makes no sense. That's just going to dry you out even more, you know. So really the best thing is hydration after a sunburn because you have disrupted the your skin layers, right, which are what's controlling how uh, dilated those blood vessels are, how much moisture you're losing through your skin, all of those different kinds of things. And then cool compresses. So a washcloth that you get cool, not frozen, not icy, those kinds of things because the sensation is disrupted to your skin as well but some you know nice cool shower or cool compresses to help take that swelling down um, and um, you know keep your skin moisturized with a, a good lotion but it's probably going to peel regardless and if it's a severe sunburn where you're in excruciating pain and you've got big blisters that's a go on to urgent care and let us take a look at that and see because we don't want those blisters to get infected This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, and we've been talking all about summer safety today. Kevin, what are we talking about these last couple of minutes of the show? Well, everybody likes a good cookout, so let's talk a little bit about food safety. Why is that so important? Well, foodborne illness is what we're trying to prevent here, right, with food safety. And aside from being just a drag, right, like, I mean, if you get food poisoning, um, oftentimes causes abdominal pain, vomiting, nausea, diarrhea, all those kinds of things, which are just not something that I like to pencil in on the regular. That's not a fun time for anyone. But depending on the age of the person, any underlying medical conditions they have, and what pathogen it is, it can be serious. You know, you can wind up with kidney issues, even permanent kidney issues from food poisoning, aside from just the dehydration that may require hospitalization. So we want to prevent that when all possible. And there are some things that we can do 
one, all the time, right? Not just for a cookout, just basic food safety in your home. But cookouts tend to be a little bit more prone to having a foodborne illness because you're outside of your standard setup, so to speak, right? When you're in your kitchen, you've got you know different cutting boards for things, hopefully, and you've got running water and soap that you can wash your hands with. The fridge is right there. Um, you know, all those different kinds of things. Whereas a cookout, you may have put things in a cooler and taken them somewhere to cook them at that particular location. And there are just kind of some red flags, so to speak, uh, for each one of those types of events that can happen. So, you know, of course, the number one rule in preparing food is that you clean and sanitize when available. So if you're um, taking things out to an event, then we want to make sure that we you know, wipe the counter down that we're going to be prepping that food on, you know, so that everything is nice and clean, as well as making sure that we clean our hands, especially if we're uh, using raw, um, you know, raw meat or some um, raw products. We want to make sure that we're sanitizing our hands in between. Um, if you're not going to have access to a bathroom, um, you know, if if you're handling raw meat, we don't want to just do hand sanitizer. Like we really want to wash that off of our hands. So packing some jugs of water to take with you uh, with some paper towels and some hand soap and that kind of stuff to be able to wash. Um, but cross-contamination is the next big thing, right? And what I mean by cross-contamination is things that are ready to eat, meaning they are not going to have heat applied to them, do not need to come into contact with things that are going to require cooking, Right. So we don't want raw chicken and broccoli like that we're going to have in a salad to share the same cooler. So keeping those things separate. So your your raw meat products or your eggs or whatever it is, keep those in one cooler and then your fresh produce that is not going to be cooked prior to consuming in a completely different cooler. Um, as well as making sure that we're cooking food um, completely and thoroughly. And you can absolutely look up kind of what the um, internal temperature is supposed to be for different cuts of meat and proteins. And I won't read those out to you, but I do encourage you to take a meat thermometer with you and check the internal temps of those particular things. And then make sure that you keep cold things cold and hot things hot. It, what happens is they it, when you leave them sitting out, they get into what we call the danger zone, where it's a little bit too warm for the things that are supposed to be cool and a little bit too cool for the things that are supposed to be warm. And that's when those bacteria can, can grow and proliferate and make you sick. All right, we have just a few minutes left. We'll go to Mikey in Mobile. Mikey, how can we help you? Uh, uh, quick question, Doc. Um, uh, at, at least I hope... Uh, uh, I was just thinking, because I have to use both, the sunscreen mm-hmm. and the bug spray. Yeah. Now, if, uh, what kind of cautionary advice do you have? Uh, I usually put the bug, I really don't do the sunscreen all the time because I have a very shady areas in my mm-hmm. yard and I stay out of the sun during the, the, that part of the day as mm-hmm. much as possible. But I do put the bug spray on because I have a shady yard, yada, da da. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and uh, bugs love nothing better than a swampy, shady, you know, and it's uh, it's July yes. <laughs> in Mobile. And uh, uh, so uh, should you, I put the bug spray on about 15 minutes before I intend to go out. Mm-hmm. And um, I do put sunscreen on my lips because I, I'm a harmonica player and they dry out too fast, but I don't. 
Um, uh, but I never thought about it before. Have yeah. you? Yeah, so you're a doctor. (laughs) Well, I'm a nurse practitioner, uh, but um, you can use products together. Uh, Usually, it's not recommended for a single use product. Like there are some products that are sold together that are both spray and sunscreen together, and those are not usually recommended. But um, you want to apply the sunscreen first and let it soak in, and then apply the insect repellent on top of that. All right. Thank you so much for that call, Mikey. I hope that answered you. If not, you can always send me an email, fit at mpbonline.org. And that brings us to the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed um, listening about some of these summer safety tips, and I hope that you'll incorporate some of them into the rest of your summer so that you have an enjoyable and memorable memorable summer vacation if you didn't catch our show in its entirety you can always go back and listen to the podcast by searching for southern remedy on your favorite podcasting app and if you didn't get your question in you can email me fit at mpbonline.org thanks to our awesome producer today kevin farrell and the podcast producer abram nanny you've been listening to southern remedy healthy and fit this is an mpb think radio podcast To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.